This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Steve Levine is a psychiatrist and therapist who began working with ketamine when it first emerged as a tool for depression and anxiety. He had struggled to find treatment protocols that worked in his own practice, and after a patient told him that the only thing that made her feel better was cough syrup, he dug into the research to figure out what that might be about. Enter ketamine. I know, you thought it was a party drug. Well, it turns out that it's actually a groundbreaking tool that can stop suicidal ideation. He'll tell us more about that in our chat. Depression is a massive mental disease in our culture that is still stigmatized and not well understood. Steve and I had a powerful conversation about all of this. We also talked about what ketamine does to the brain and the body, what the process of ketamine infusion therapy is like, and how, as a culture, we might need to redefine the meaning of depression. It was fascinating. When we are talking about a lethal condition like depression, it's extremely important that we treat that as quickly as possible, that we have rapid-acting treatments that can help pull people quickly back from the brink of suicide and now have enough distance and enough time to be able to now think about what else might be helpful in treating the depression. So let's get into my chat with Steve Levine. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for your good work. I know you, I think you were the first ketamine practicing psychiatrist who we ever spoke to back in the day. I don't even know if you remember that. You did a story with us for... Goop Magazine. Yes, that was about a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. So take us through how how this came to be, how, how Actify came to be, where you started, how you rediscovered or discovered ketamine. I would love to. <laughs> I found myself in psychiatry somewhat accidentally, mostly drawn to it because of the human element, the, the story element. I've always been fascinated by people's stories. And my training as a psychiatrist was fairly unusual for how psychiatrists are trained these days. I trained at New York Presbyterian Hospital, while Cornell. That is a last bastion of teaching psychiatrists to be therapists first mm. and medication prescribers second. And I started in private practice very much in that way, talking to people most of the time. That traditional 50-minute hour, tell me about your mother. <laughs> And Why is it always the mother? It's always the mother. I know. It's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> but prescribing medications when appropriate. And from the beginning, feeling fairly dissatisfied with our medication options. It's really remarkable. We are the only field in psychiatry 
that is still treating a disease like depression, treating a disease in the same way we did 60 years ago. Yeah. All of the new medications, quote unquote new, that have come along in the past several decades have not been particularly new. They've been small tweaks on the same formula, essentially rewarmed leftovers, and really have not added additional benefit for our patients with depression. And so we're, we're faced with this enormous problem of an extremely common condition. Depression affects roughly one in five Americans over the course of their lifetime. Millions of people every year, yet even with extensive and expert treatment, about a third of them won't respond to those medicines of the past 60 years. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking to my patients in talk therapy, prescribing once in a while, and in through my door back in 2010 walks someone for a second opinion consultation. She had been through the mill. She had tried all the usual medicines. She had also had ECT, shock therapy. Mm. And with all of these treatments, she either didn't have a response, she you know, didn't have a reduction in her symptoms, or she wasn't able to continue because she had severe side effects. One thing I've always done, and especially in second opinion consultation situations, is to not only ask people about the prescription medications they've tried, but also what has been their experience with over-the-counter medicines mm -hmm. or even with drugs of abuse, because that can often be instructive of how does this individual break down medicines in their body or what types of mechanisms might they respond to. Interesting. In her case, the one thing that ever helped her mood, and she just found this out by accident, was taking over-the-counter cough medicines. And the ingredient that was common amongst those medicines was dextromethorphan. Now, some people might be familiar with abuse of cough medicines. Usually it's high school kids. They'll drink a whole bottle of cough medicine and have an unusual experience. That's not what she was doing. She was taking cough medicine per the instructions on the side of the bottle, that little quarter cap of grape stuff, and it was helping her mood. And that made me really curious. What is it about dextromethorphan that would explain her observation? And then further from that, is there anything else out there that shares properties with it and has any research-based evidence for helping mood? Lo and behold, the third and fourth research papers on ketamine for depression had just been published. And I had seen the first couple, but like most people, I think was skeptical of them. Mm -hmm. You know, we get these results once in a while, this very unexpected finding, and it's never replicated. We can't repeat it. Right. But in this case, like I said, the third and fourth papers have just come out, and now I have some context to put this in. I'm taking a closer look and wondering, wait a second. These are very ill people who've tried dozens of medications, and they're being given this medicine, ketamine, that was developed 50 years ago, very much on purpose because of its unique safety profile. They're given a fractional dose of what people are given every day around the world, millions of people, to treat pain, acute trauma, used as a general anesthetic, fractional dose of that, and they're getting significantly better within hours of a single exposure. Why wouldn't we think about using that? Right. And that provoked me. And so now we're fast forwarding through a lot. But that really formed the basis for wanting to develop a practice in Actify that is not just focused on ketamine, but really focused on how do we make innovative treatment more accessible to more people? Right. How do we think beyond just the standard offerings that we've had for the past several decades and try to do better to have more rapid acting treatments that have more acceptable side effect profiles and make these available to all these people that are suffering. And so tell me if I'm correct in this. So it seems like ketamine is one is a, a breakthrough off it's obviously it's an off-label but legal use of ketamine in this in these scenarios and that it is like a depression disruptor, is that fair? That it sort of stabilizes and brings people almost immediately out of a deeply rutted, complicated, pervasive depression? First of all, 
when I started treating people with ketamine in 2011, it was what's called off-label use. Right. Ketamine was FDA approved in 1970 as a general anesthetic. It's on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines for that purpose. But using it for an indication other than anesthesia, in this case depression, is considered off-label. But still legal. But still legal. Doctors are permitted to prescribe medicines off-label as long as there's research support for that. Two months ago, though, we now have, as of two months ago, we now have an FDA-approved version of ketamine called S-ketamine. The brand name is Spravato. And it is the same medicine. Right. You know, the proof of that is if you look at the package insert for S-ketamine in the top left-hand corner, you'll see originally approved as ketamine in 1970. And it's, but it's just wildly more expensive, right? It is more expensive. And yeah. that is an interesting thing about our healthcare system, of course. Right. But we digress. Uh, but we digress, yes. <laughs> but to your question, though, yeah. yes, it, is, it does work quite differently than our typical medicines. So the mainstays of depression treatment are medicines like SSRIs, Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Lexapro, names that are now, of course, household names. People are very familiar with these medicines. Millions of people take them. But they're all based upon a theory of depression that at this point we clearly know is not true. And that's the chemical imbalance theory. Right. This idea that you don't have enough serotonin or other related chemicals. You take a medicine to increase those levels and you feel better. We know that's not true because if it were, then just about anybody who took one of those medicines would feel better within a first dose or so because mm-hmm. that's how long it takes to increase the levels of serotonin. Right. Actually, yeah. That's yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so those medicines do work. You know, they've helped a lot of people, but they don't work because of that reason. Mm-hmm. And they do take a long time to work. You know, for a typical person, they'll take weeks to months before you'll even know if that's going to be an effective treatment. Right. And in the meantime, most people experience them as more masking the symptoms mm-hmm. than really treating the underlying condition. Right. And they come with a number of side effects. Sexual side effects are extremely common, way more common than were originally reported. Weight gain, stomach upset, etc. Ketamine, first of all, does a number of different things. One aspect of its mechanism has been the primary area of focus, and I'll talk about that. But it's important probably to say off the bat that ketamine goes a lot of places in the brain and the body. And so we may not at this point really fully understand how it treats depression. And there may be more than one pathway to depression. You know, we have this definition of depression that's pretty vague and broad, and people can experience that in different ways. When we get around to knowing more about what we really are talking about here, we'll probably realize that there are subtypes of depression and different pathways of getting there, mm-hmm. and therefore more tailored treatments may be more effective for one person than another. But for the moment, the best explanation we have right now for how ketamine treats depression is if we look at brains of people who suffer from chronic stress of various sorts, depression, anxiety more specifically, there are structural changes in the brain. So if somebody says depression is all in your head, well, that's true. Mm -hmm. But we can take pictures of it and we can measure it at this point. You'll see changes in the number, function, and quality of important connections between areas of the brain. Mm. Ketamine, through just a few step mechanism produces proteins that help to repair those connections. And so ketamine for depression, different than a Prozac, is one that optimistically is really one that repairs the damage in the brain that's the result of depression. Mm. So it rewires or repairs, rewires, and and then does that mean that you do ketamine and you're never afflicted again? Or is it just the first step of many towards recovery and repair? Unfortunately, it's not a cure. It's a treatment. Right. And that's, you know, that's what we have at this point. We have treatments. And it's a good question, though. If ketamine is repairing the brain, then why is that not permanent? Mm-hmm. And a partial answer to that may be that either ongoing or new stress may undo some of that repair. Right. And so we need to continually be working at maintaining that repair. Yeah. 
But that speaks to what to me is probably a more essential point, which is that ketamine is a tool. Mm-hmm. It's not a magic bullet. It's not the answer for anyone. It's a tool. And at Actify, we think of it as a way of rapidly enabling, enabling people to take a more active role in a more comprehensive plan of recovery and wellness. Yeah. We want people to think of this as just one piece of it. Right. And that's one of the reasons why we think of it as an advantage that people are in the office with us for treatment. We get to spend a lot of time with them, (laughs) both within a given visit, but also over time. We get to know them really well. And with that, we get to focus on much more than just medicine. Mm -hmm. People are more complex than that. People aren't just a big bag of chemicals, and if you give them the right chemical, then they're fixed. That's very reductionist. It's frankly, to me, insulting of the richness and beauty of people and their minds. And so we have this tool now in ketamine, and not just ketamine, but other treatments like TMS, Mm. which I can talk about too, that are really revolutionary in the sense that they are not just adjusting people's chemistry but rapidly enabling their brains, rapidly enabling them to be able to engage in more complete treatment that includes talking, yeah. you know, talking through what may be situational stressors, unresolved issues from the past, addressing ways of thinking in the present that may reinforce negative beliefs about yourself or about the world or about yourself in the world. Mm-hmm. Focusing on things like nutrition, physical activity, the ways that along the lines of nutrition that food can be medicine, Mm -hmm. other nutritional mineral vitamin deficiencies that people may have, on and on. Right. Right. And these things need to be individually tailored to people to meet them where they are. Exactly. But I mean, if if you have someone who's in the hole or on the cliff's edge of suicidality, then I imagine this is incredibly powerful for moving them back and giving them a shot at creating habits that will support them in a more hopeful life. That's a great point. And one thing that I think often gets lost in the discussion of conditions like depression is the fact that it's a lethal illness. Yeah. You know, we talk about treating something like cancer, and there's no controversy there. Everyone agrees cancer is lethal. We need to bring all treatments to bear that we have available, no matter how toxic they may be. There's lots of advocacy around cancer treatment. There's parades, there's ribbons, etc. With depression, by virtue of the definition of depression, people have a tough time advocating for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so it's not so loudly screamed to the world that people are dying of this stuff, Right. that suicide rates are rising. Mm -hmm. And so when we are talking about a lethal condition like depression, it's extremely important that we treat that as quickly as possible, that we have rapid acting treatments that can help pull people quickly back from the brink of suicide and now have enough distance and enough time to be able to now think about what else might be helpful in treating the depression. Absolutely. And I think it's not only are depressed people maybe not the best advocates for themselves, but they're, we're still conditioned culturally and it's still stigmatized, although it's getting better. But I think there's still that, what do you have to be depressed about? What like, what could you possibly worry about? And I think we bring that on ourselves, right? Like, we judge ourselves when we're in the middle of anxiety or depression for how dare you, right? Like, what rights do you have? Exactly. And to your point, some of the stigma around depression has reduced over the past several years. And that's both good and bad, mm-hmm. in a way. You know, the good is obvious. The more negative sometimes is that Depression has become a word that is commonly used in everyday conversation. And because of that, I think to some people, it's been a bit watered down. Right. And so people might use it interchangeably with, I'm bummed out. I'm having a bad day. Mm -hmm. Everyone has bad days. Everyone feels down or sad sometimes. But that's not depression. Right. Right. Clinical depression is something that you can't just pull yourself out of. It doesn't just last moments or a day or two. This is something that lasts at least weeks, if not months or years, and is completely paralyzing. 
Right. And because of that is the leading cause of disability worldwide. Yeah. It is the number one cause of, of lost work days. Right. And so, but because people sometimes think of depression as being bummed out and they've been able to just pull themselves out of that in a self-righteous way, they might say, oh, well, I've been depressed. And when I'm depressed, I pull myself out of it. Totally. Right. Well, no, yeah. <laughs> if, if that's what you believe, then you probably have never been depressed. Right. And I think too, there's the, this, just because something is normal, we see this all over our culture, just because something is common doesn't mean it's normal or that it's acceptable. Which may be another reason that stigma is perpetuated. Right. Because it touches everyone. Right. It's it a little too close to home for most people. Everyone, almost everyone, either personally or within their very close circle of family or friends has been affected by depression in some ways. And right. so that can be very frightening and a reason to want to distance yourself from it. So who is, I want to talk about who the who is a candidate for ketamine treatment and then what, what does that look like? Do you need to be off your SSRIs? Do you need to, like who can walk in and be an appropriate recipient of this treatment? At Actify, we... Our people are those who might be called treatment resistant. Mm -hmm. And that's whether we're treating someone with ketamine, with the nasal S ketamine, with TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation. Mm. The technical definition of treatment resistance is lack of response to at least two treatment attempts. But there's an asterisk next to that because typically somebody will have tried two SSRIs mm -hmm. or medicine, you know, many or maybe more than two, but typically medicines all within that same family. Because those medicines are so similar to each other, it really is not fair to say that they are treatment resistant mm. because it might just be that they are people who are resistant to SSRIs. Right. Right. They're not, that doesn't mean that they can't get well with anything. It means that they may not be somebody who would respond to one of our conventional, traditional antidepressants. Right. But to answer your question directly, yes, the people that we are typically working with are those that have tried at least a couple of medicines and maybe talk therapy as well, haven't had adequate relief from that. Or maybe they have had some benefit, but they haven't been able to continue because they've had unacceptable side effects like the sexual side effects, right. like weight gain. Etc. Do you believe that ketamine is something that almost anyone could benefit from taking? I don't know if you're legally allowed to answer that question, but I am curious. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'd go that far. Yeah. With what we know about ketamine in terms of the long-term use of it for conditions like acute traumatic injury as an anesthetic during surgery, for chronic pain conditions, more recently for depression, PTSD, obsessive compulsive disorder. We know that it has a very favorable side effect profile. And we know that this medicine appears you know, quite safe when used appropriately in low doses in a controlled medical setting. However, this is a pretty new way of approaching depression. Right. And because of that, for your average person on the street who maybe is having a first episode of depression in his or her lifetime and is first approaching treatment, right now, it probably would not be most appropriate to say this person should have ketamine. Right. And it does have addictive potential for some people, right? For some people, you know, yeah. one of the ways that ketamine is known around the world is as a drug that may be abused. Mm -hmm. Now, that reputation is a bit unfair because it represents a tiny fraction of the overall use of ketamine. But nonetheless, it's something that we should be mindful of and careful in how we use it. Yeah. And that really speaks to the appropriate setting and prescription of ketamine. Because it does have this addictive potential... And because it does, for a matter of minutes, create a somewhat unique state of mind, it's important this be in a controlled medical setting, in appropriate doses, on an infrequent basis. Right. And when it's prescribed in that way, that addictive potential is quite low. 
So and what is that? Do people come in and just do they do sort of their initial dose, have an experience, integrate that experience, try to work, you know, work on all of those other factors that you mentioned, like nutrition and exercise and sleep? And then do they come in for sort of boosters as needed? Or do pe- people typically, is this a long-term treatment? Yeah, much like you just described, there's a combination of the acute treatment and the therapy and the other comprehensive treatment that surrounds that. And then there's a consideration of how to maintain that longer term. And so the typical pattern of treatment would be to have an acute or induction series of ketamine. And that's typically five treatments within the first two weeks. And then we start to taper off the frequency. We move that out further and further as tolerated aiming for the least frequent treatment possible without return of symptoms. Mm -hmm. And then some people might continue with ketamine on a longer-term maintenance basis. And on average, that would be about once a month. Mm -hmm. Whereas others might move to talk therapy Mm -hmm. or a more traditional oral medication or perhaps more of just a focus on diet and exercise and other protective factors And that might be sufficient until and unless they had another episode of depression down the line. I love the idea because I think as a child of a doctor and a nurse, I was both underprescribed and (laughs) overprescribed. So and really good at self-prescribing. But I never – I had some bouts of sort of seasonal affective disorder and I was prescribed SSRIs I think once or twice. But like I couldn't. I'm not good at taking prescription. I wasn't good at the birth control pill. I don't like it. I don't like being habituated. I don't want to take something every day. So I love the idea in general of this episodic, more intense, less sort of like here's the rigor of my week approach to healthcare. And I think, and for mental health, I think the idea too of like a longer session with less frequency but the ability to sort of build those tools yourself probably, I would imagine, brings a lot of agency to your patients. Yes. And your experience is common. You know, it's tough to remember to take medicine every day. Yeah. It becomes a rote thing. And it doesn't take long for you to stand in the bathroom thinking, wait a second, did I take it or not? Yeah. Or you're at work in the middle of the day and you have that moment of, oh, did I take my medicine? And you have no idea because it's something that becomes relatively thoughtless day after day. And then there's the idea of being medicated all the time. And for many people, that's not a very desirable thing. I'm sure you've heard somebody say something like, I'm on Prozac and I went to a funeral and I was the only person that wasn't crying. Right. People can feel very emotionally numbed by chronically taking antidepressants. Yeah. And so, yes, with something like ketamine or TMS, with this more intermittent, intense treatment and in between not being medicated, not only are you freed in a way from that daily routine of always being medicated and having to keep up with that or potentially having withdrawal if you forget, right? but it's the, I think, more advantageous scenario of also having more of an experience around treatment mm-hmm. because it happens you know within a medical environment within a therapeutic setting not just taking the medicine in a vacuum every day at home there are so many more opportunities to focus on your wellness and recovery in this in this intermittent way that i think overall can be much more effective yeah and i feel like you would probably be able to figure out like where the there there is if that makes sense like where yes. you are in space and time who you are, absent all these layers of other daily medicine, which I would imagine would be profound relief. That's the experience of many of our patients. Yeah. You know, it's, I've, I've been so impressed by how articulately our patients describe just that over time. You know, these are folks who, this is not their first rodeo. They've had many different experiences of treatment, and they're always struck by things just like that. I think every person that I've ever treated with ketamine and every person I've ever talked with about ketamine has asked me if I've ever tried ketamine. (laughs) 
And my answer and the real answer is no. Interesting. And then either they don't believe me or they think it's crazy that I haven't and they wonder why. And the answer is one name, Timothy Leary. Mm. In the the 60s, LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, psychedelic therapies were the most promising thing going. And Timothy Leary fucked it up. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not him no, he personally, fucked it but up. he yeah, yeah he yeah. fucked it up. He, right? he it forgot up. that not everyone thinks about these things in this way. Yeah, that there's a lot of people out there, especially between the coasts, that don't have as liberal, liberal an attitude about psychedelics, and that if there's an opportunity to think of it as just recreation, as opposed to either treatment or growth, because it doesn't necessarily have to be just to treat disease. Right. right? There could be other applications. But if we talk about it with a smirk and as if it's just recreation, as if it's just fucking around, then that's going to give people all the opportunities in the world to legislate that out. Yeah. And so I try to be very, very mindful of the fact that the stakes are really, really high here. Yeah. And there are probably a lot of people out there who would like to have an opportunity to say, see, knew it. Mm-hmm. Right. This wasn't science. This wasn't medicine. This wasn't to take care of people. It was this is because people want to get high. Yeah. And I would not want to give somebody that opportunity. Yeah. So interesting because I feel like the therapeutic application of any of these drugs is not fun. Like the, it is not recreational. So that's like a whole nother component of it. Like Set and setting, right? The, yeah. the intention and the setting in which it's taken and the attitude with which it's taken all have a profound influence over the quality of the experience. Yeah. And so our patients, when they come in with the intention of treating depression, and they're having this in a controlled medical environment, it's very different than a rave. Yeah. And so one of the most common things I'll hear from someone after they have a first infusion was, that wasn't fun. Yeah. And why would people want to take that just to party? That wasn't a party. Yeah. No, for sure. And so then they'll often say, so that better work. <laughs> Yeah. Usually that better fucking work. Yeah. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, You know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. (laughs) Okay, let's take a quick break. So clearly I'm biased, but the Goop podcast is one of the most rewarding projects that I've ever worked on at Goop, or really anywhere. I love the conversations I get to have here with so many incredible thought leaders. Pretty much ever since we launched the Goop podcast last March, we've been dreaming up other podcast series that we'd want to listen to and share with you guys. And I'm super excited about what we came up with. Our first series to follow the Goop podcast is called Goop Fellas. It's hosted by, yes, you guessed it, two men. Will Cole is a functional medicine practitioner, and Seamus Mullen is a chef. They've both become good friends of mine and part of the Goop family. You might have heard them both on this podcast before. Like me, and many of you, I'm sure, Will and Seamus are really interested in what drives people to change, to heal, to reinvent themselves, to reclaim their health, or bounce back from a heartbreak. Seamus himself almost died from rheumatoid arthritis, and Will's day job is helping people uncover and overturn the roots of disease. In other words, they are intimately familiar with unlikely personal transformations. 
On Goopfellas, Will and Seamus sit down with people who have incredible stories about confronting life challenges. It's our hope that these conversations will appeal to men, because I don't think there is enough space in our culture for men to be vulnerable. But this is also a series for women, and for that matter, for anyone who is looking to bring about change in their life, big or small. You can listen to Goopfellas on your favorite podcast platforms. We've just launched the first season, and we'll be dropping new episodes on Wednesdays. Subscribe to keep up. And to learn more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. I hope you love Will, Seamus, and this series as much as I do. Break's over. Let's get back to my chat with Steve Levine. So how available is ketamine at this point? How it seems based on the extreme amount of depression in our, in Western society alone, in the U.S. alone, that every every psychiatrist needs to be <laughs> able to administer ketamine. But, but honestly, like how, what is the demand like at this point? And how, how are we going to facilitate this? I would use the royal we, but I mean, it feels like you're clearly, there's like a moral imperative for a treatment like this to become more available. It's evolved over time. When I first started treating patients with ketamine in 2011, it's pretty much the only game in town. Right. <laughs> and it was so it was a big pain in the neck for people. They would have to travel from all over the country and around the world because there was nowhere else to have treatment. Mm. As of 2015, 16, 17, more treatment options became available, mostly in the US, but around the world as well. But still not really meeting the need of 17 million Americans with depression every year. Yeah. With the FDA approval of another version of ketamine a couple of months ago, it will increase access to treatment more. You know, one of the things that's been difficult to this point is because this has not been directly FDA approved, it hasn't been directly covered by insurance companies. Mm. And that's made this an expensive treatment for many people. Right. Now, fortunately, at Actify at least, because we're all psychiatrists, and we're doing much more within a visit than just giving somebody ketamine, our patients have at least been able to get some reimbursement from their insurance companies over the years to help defray the costs of treatment. But nonetheless, it hasn't been very accessible, both geographically or financially. That is changing a bit. However, it's interesting. In psychiatry, the typical model of delivering care has always been shrink, desk, phone, chair. Mm -hmm which isn't really appropriate or, or really even practical for delivering a treatment like ketamine, which is a more medicalized treatment. But not just medical, right? It straddles that line between medical and more of a wellness-like environment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've had to create a somewhat unique treatment environment that both values being medically appropriate to deliver treatments like ketamine and TMS, but also being accessible and feel more therapeutic than your typical infusion center. Right. And that's going to take longer for others to catch up to. So I want to understand what TMS is, but then I also, on as a follow-up to that, what are there other things that come into play? Like, is there a t- is there a somatic component of this treatment, or is it primarily touch? Or sorry, primarily talk, IV infusion, ketamine. What is the world in which you think ideally this would exist? So to talk about TMS, I guess first. Yeah. TMS stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation. Sounds fun. Sounds fun. <laughs> is that uh, a head massage? <laughs> kind of, actually. <laughs> Yes, very fancy sounding language, but broadly, it's a way of applying an energy field to the brain to change it in some way. In this case, it's an MRI strength magnet, an electromagnet that creates a very low energy impulse. So if we were going to compare it to something like ECT, which people are maybe aware of and maybe is very scary to some people, this is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the energy used for something like ECT. It's considered non-invasive. It's done in an office setting. It takes just a matter of a few minutes, and people can actually go back to work afterwards. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And it, within the matter of a couple of weeks, 
has the capacity to cause some changes in the brain very similar to ketamine. It can help to repair some of these connections that are damaged by chronic stress. Mm. And so whether it's TMS or ketamine, both of them are embedded within a larger matrix of treatment. And that includes talk therapy and various styles of talk therapy, but one that pairs particularly well with ketamine is cognitive behavioral therapy, Mm -hmm. CBT. CBT is a skill-based therapy. You very quickly learn some tools to test your thoughts, what are called automatic negative thoughts in the language of CBT, Mm -hmm. which fits in very well with ketamine because ketamine, within a window of time after each treatment, actually prepares the brain for new learning. It makes your brain more receptive to new learning. And so if you compare that biologic intervention with this very targeted therapeutic new learning, that's even more effective. Interesting. Yes. And along with that, we work towards getting people reconnected with their social networks. Mm. We try to get them more involved in communities again, back to work if they haven't been working. We encourage physical activity. You know, these are things that people, of course, are always encouraged to do when they have depression. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's you know, like a big fuck off, right? It really is. If you're depressed. Yeah. yeah. Well, dummy, I know that. And I would yeah. if I could. But if you know anything about depression, you know that I'm paralyzed and I can't. So thanks for the advice. Right. Yeah. In this case, because people can have such a rapid response to the treatment and the things that we typically see most uh, soonest with this treatment are functional improvements. People feel like they can do more and also that they have cognitive improvement. They, they can think more clearly again. It becomes more possible to do these things. And so they then get the feedback of the gratification of having some early successes with getting back to doing some things that they were able to do in the past but have not been able to do often for a long time. So you mentioned OCD and I feel like I saw bipolar within your literature. Like, are what are the is 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 bipolar something that can be addressed with ketamine, or what about more co- even you know schizophrenia, really complex mental disease? Is this is it appropriate? Is it helpful? Conditions that we've seen benef- some benefit with ketamine so far have included depression. Mm-hmm. Bipolar disorder, although with bipolar disorder, there are two poles to the illness. There's depression and mania. Mm -hmm. Ketamine can be helpful with the depressed phase of bipolar disorder, but you would not want to give it to somebody who's currently having a manic episode. Makes sense. Post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Mm -hmm. Obsessive compulsive disorder, also called OCD. You mentioned schizophrenia. That's currently something that we would consider to be a contraindication for ketamine. Mm -hmm. It actually has been studied in schizophrenia. With schizophrenia, there are what are called positive and negative symptoms. Those aren't value judgments. The positive symptoms are what we would typically associate with schizophrenia. They're the more dramatic, observable things like hallucinations and delusions. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes, the more debilitating symptoms are the negative symptoms. And that's things like social and occupational withdrawal and dysfunction, a flattening of affect, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, the expression component of emotion, cognitive decline, things like that. And so ketamine has been studied to see whether it might help improve the negative symptoms of schizophrenia, which is a set of symptoms not particularly helped by most schizophrenia treatments. Right. There's is potentially some mild benefit there. It can also transiently, for a brief period of time, worsen some of the positive symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so currently it's not a common application of it, but it's something being studied more. That's interesting. How often do you feel like, when we think about diagnoses, in your experience, do you feel like there are cut and dry diagnoses? Or do you feel like depression and mental disease has just become this sloppy bucket for people's experiences that aren't, quote unquote, normal? (laughs) Do I think that (laughs) diagnoses are cut and dried? In a word, no. Mm -hmm. We have this diagnostic system that 
is Byzantine, and it's kind of a Frankenstein's monster that's been sewn together over the years. It serves a purpose. It's given us at least some common language to try to have some consistency in how we talk about mental illness, but it's completely artificial. And there's been a movement, especially at NIH, the National Institute of Health, to move away from our current diagnostic system. It's called the DSM. To a system that is more based on observation of symptoms than just these diagnoses. Because what we have right now are syndromes. A syndrome is not a disease. With a disease, we tend to have a pretty specific idea of what causes it and a very targeted treatment to either treat or cure it. With a syndrome, we have a collection of symptoms that tends to go together. We draw a circle around it. These circles overlap each other like Venn diagrams, and so they have many symptoms in common across multiple diagnoses. About every 10 years or so, we erase those circles and we draw new ones and we give them new names. And the symptoms haven't changed, people haven't changed, just the names change. And it creates even more confusion. So yes, we have a long way to go to getting greater precision around how we describe mental illness which should hopefully coincide with having more targeted treatments that are more specific to these conditions and are hopefully more effective. Yeah. It's interesting, too, I think, when you think about the the spectrum of depression or you also want, and maybe this is an insane thing to say, but it feels like our desire to eradicate hard experiences, too, is one to be wary of, like that there's something to be said for being able to have a depressive episode, you obviously don't want to be clinically depressed or in a treatment. You don't want to be depressed forever. But there is like this also fabric of feeling that I think we all want to be able to access within, you know what I mean? Like how do you also create a world where people are allowed to have their feelings without this like desire to corral everyone into Pleasantville happiness. Yeah, maybe that goes back to what we were talking about before about kind of the downside of reduced stigma around depression and commonly using a word like depression and applying that across a spectrum that includes just bummed out in a bad day. Yeah. Because that is an it's an important line to draw. It's it's important to have the full spectrum of emotional experience. It's important to feel pain sometimes, to feel sadness, to not have a smile plastered on our, on our faces and, and always be happy. There's a line that we cross when we are now so depressed that we can't function and we can't participate in life and perhaps are motivated to end our life. Yeah. And that certainly is the point where we want to intervene Mm -hmm. and try to help somebody move past that. But yes, absolutely. I think the goal should not be just to reach some blissed out, uh, (laughs) permanent state of of happiness where we don't get to experience that full, rich palette of human emotion. Yeah. But I think along those lines, it, it speaks again to why something like so many SSRI or SSRIs in general are so masking for so many people, right? Because it's that evening out, if they work, of experience so you're not experiencing. Exactly. If you're just evened out, is that really a good outcome? Right. Totally. In light of esketamine, in light of this becoming more increasingly mainstream, I'm sh- I feel like it still has a ways to go. Most people haven't heard of it as an option. But do you imagine a day when this will become widely available or as available as it needs to be for the one in five people who might benefit? I'm an optimist. (laughs) Right now, still in mental health, we practice typically in outdated and ineffective ways. But we are on the cusp of some major frontiers. Ketamine is here. TMS is here. These represent new ways to approach these conditions that can be more effective and healthier and more acceptable to more people. And at Actify, we are actively undergoing some changes within our practice to make these things more widely accessible to more people. 
particularly with going in network with insurance plans and making Mm -hmm. treatment more financially accessible to people. But much beyond that, if we look at the pipeline of research and development in the mental health space right now and in depression research, we are on the cusp of some big deal changes. Mm -hmm. There are some really important treatments coming down the pike. And to me, that's the most important thing of all, that that people who are suffering from depression, who have loved ones who are suffering from depression, understand that there are people out there who understand that it's important that we have as many great options as possible, that we can't just rest on our laurels and say, ketamine is a wonderful new treatment and it helps people in new ways and that's good enough and we're done. Right. We need to continue to innovate and push beyond that to find more and more effective treatments because no one thing is going to help everyone. We need more options and more options are coming soon. And are you, in terms of the options, are you talking about some of the other psychedelics that are close, like the MDMA PTSD work, or are there other pharma drugs that are coming that you think are really promising? Or are you not allowed to say? I can say. Uh, <laughs> they they both are the case. Yeah. Yeah. So you're referencing some of the medicines that had that showed tremendous promise decades ago. Yeah. And unfortunately, because they weren't handled in the right way by the academic world, they went bye-bye for a long time with the Narcotics Act of 1971. But they've re-entered our consciousness with recent books. No and pun intended. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it was intended, actually. Uh, <laughs> and are showing tremendous promise. And yeah. so, yes, you mentioned MDMA for PTSD, psilocybin for depression. You know, these are other promising avenues that may be available within the next year or so. But there's more beyond that. One of the benefits of the success of ketamine has been that it's kicked pharma in the pants Mm -hmm. and given them some reason to take some chances again. They have played it safe for the past couple of decades for a number of reasons and not really taken chances on new mechanisms. But because of what we've seen with ketamine, the promise of rapid-acting therapies that people don't have to take every day in order to continue to have some benefit, they've taken some chances on trying some new mechanisms And some of them now are in late phase development that are truly novel, new ways of approaching depression. Thanks for listening to my chat with Steve Levine. You can learn more about him at stephenplevinemd.com. That's L-E-V-I-N-E. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend who might need to listen. Thanks again for joining. You can check out goop.com slash the podcast for more.